Alright, here we go. Hello, everybody again. Hello. Alright, so last week, when we were studying the, the portion, we actually did the verses, and we studied the uh, Aseret Hadibrot, right? The ten statements, or utterances, um, which we often call commandments, um, which this curriculum, curriculum in particular wants not, us not to do, because they want to be more contextual about what were these actually ten things, because by saying that they're commandments is already an interpretation of them, which is a classic interpretation of them, that there are ten commandments. Um, but when, in fact, the language itself even already implies that they're you know, utterances or, or the things that were spoken um, in a particular context, which we, we learned about, which is Mount Sinai after the Exodus and so on and so forth, um, during revelation of God's presence, which is also mysterious in and of itself. Um, however, so l- the way the curriculum is structured here is, is that last week we kind of looked at the verses. We went commandment by commandment, although, of course, because we don't have enough time to do everything that the curriculum has in here, we didn't focus on every single commandment, but we looked at a number individually. The, the purpose of this particular session is to try to explore kind of in a deeper way, what's the role of the Aseret Hadibro? What are these things anyway? How are they structured? Um, and, and what can we learn from the fact that they're structured in this way? And um, the way that I picked out my priority texts um, have us start on page 64. If we want to go back to some of the other sources, I've always encouraged you, if you wanted to, to read in advance. So if any of you actually did that and you kind of were hoping we'd deal with sources one through three, um, you know, and you want to draw me back to that at some point, that's fine. Um, but I would like to, at the limited time, because there's ten different sources and there's no way we're going to do that in an hour and a half, I would like to start with source four. And it's in the, 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 the uh, their titling of it is The Appearance and Function of the Aseret Hadibrot. Um, the appearance is pretty easily kind of shown in section three that, just to point out to you, that through our own sources, we do not know what the appearance of the tablets were. Right? If you just read the Torah, it doesn't describe them in that physical way. Um, and the most ancient sources in Jewish, the Jewish sources that try to describe them, definitely do not have them in that, you know, rounded at the top tablet form. Um, if you, if some of the, I read some of the, the side commentary they give for the teachers here, the history of that, that comes from like 12th century England. There's a specific term for that shape, and that was like uh, that's how they wrote that's how they wrote codexes at the time. They wrote it on that shape, and that was like the official kind of official shape. If you saw that, you knew it was like an official law, um, and that became like the majority thing in, in art and all sorts of other things that depicted the commandments. There's not even we're not even 100 percent sure whether they were two tablets or one double tablet. In fact, from the way it's written, it almost sounds like they're actually two tablets, right? Meaning that they're not connected. Um, They're holding two different ones. And this uh, one of the Talmud Bavli, the way it gets described in the Talmud is it looks like they were two squares that fit very nicely in the ark, you know, that they created in the Mishkan, in the tabernacle, along with the other things. So it fit very nicely in that rectangular box um, that they carried around with them that was their portable sanctuary and not this oddly shaped rounded one. But I, I thought that was a curiosity, not that not, it's important, but I didn't find that to be super important. But what I did find number commentary number four to be interesting because it does talk a little bit more about function um, rather than appearance. Um, th- this is the Yerushalmi. 
the, just real quick, the difference between the Talmud Bavli and the Talmud Yerushalmi. The Talmud Bavli, or the Babylonian Talmud, is the preeminent Talmud. It's the Talmud that has gotten the most, um, uh, has achieved the most prominence and is the most widely read. That's because the Jewish community in Babylonia um, during the 2nd to 6th century was like super peak. And the Jerusalem or Israeli community uh, was always central in some ways, but in reality there were a lot less Jews with a lot less freedoms and a lot less affluence. So it was kind of like the way that the, the world was before Israel, the modern state of Israel, like in the 1920s, just as an example. Where would the Jewish community have been its strongest? Right here in the United States. Right? You were looking for scholarship, you were looking for Jewish publications, you were looking for Jewish cultural and intellectual life, you would look in the United States and in certain places in Europe. Nowadays, like Israel, even more so in some ways dwarfs the United States even, in terms of how much Jewish life is going on, but they're kind of like dual centers. Um, so there was a Talmud that was created in Israel, um, a parallel to the one in the Babylonian Talmud, but it, the Babylonian Talmud was achieved more prominence. But we still study the Jerusalem Talmud, um, and that's what we have here. So, who wants to be my reader for today, or at least for this text? So it's not just me. Go for it, Larry. Uh, in what manner were the tablets inscribed? Rabbi Hanina ben Gamliel says, five on one tablet and five on the other. The rabbis say, ten on one tablet and ten on the other. Rabbi Shimon bar Yochai says, twenty on one tablet and twenty on the other tablet. Rabbi Simai says, forty on one tablet and forty on the other tablet in a square. All right, so that first part is more in the area that I'm not as interested in. Um, there's a debate about whether he meant, what these guys meant when they said 10 on one and 10 on the other and 20 on one, because that doesn't equal 10 commandments, right? Whether they meant it was repeated, meaning like they wrote out 10 and then they wrote out another, the 10 again, and they, you know, so that it was almost like copies on, on the tablet, or whether, as we're going to see in a little bit, it means something a little bit more metaphoric than that. Um, so... Um, and then the idea that it's in a square as opposed to the rounded top, that's what I already explained to you. Um, that's the same as the Babylonian Talmud. Here's where the, I think, the substance, perhaps, of the text is going to be revealed. If you would continue, please. Hananiah, the nephew of Rabbi Yehoshua, says, between each of the statements are the specific details of the Torah. As it is said, the first half of the verse is, the first half of the verse is midrashically understood to be speaking of the tablets of Moshe filled with important items as the wide sea. When Rabbi Shimon ben Lakish would reach, would reach this verse, he would say, I was well taught by Hanani the nephew of Rabbi Yehoshua that just as the waves of the sea have small waves in between the large ones, so too in between the statements of the tablets are the specific details of the Torah. Okay. What do you think he means? What is this analogy with the you know, waves of the sea and, um, you know, the details and what's going on here? Anybody want to? Well, it's not to be taken literally. It doesn't mean that there's a commandment and then literally a parsha underneath it and then another commandment and parsha, correct? So it's, it's, it's a metaphor. Okay, so what you're, you're, you're trying to ask slash say is that it, it can't be. It probably can't be taken totally literal. That literally on the commandments there was like a commandment with a listing of the details underneath, right? That it, it's got to be more metaphoric about the relationship, perhaps, to the commandments. 
to the details. I don't want to say more because I don't think you said more, so I want to keep the ideas uh, flowing. Did you want to say any more about that? You don't have to. I just didn't want to cut you off. Um, were you asking us to explain the metaphor of the, of the waves? Though? Yeah, I, I kind of want to know, like, if I was reading this and I was trying to write an analysis of, like, so what did I learn from this text? What is he trying to actually say um, about the Ten Commandments or the law or whatever? It's actually a very, uh, it's a beautiful metaphor. It, it, it basically, you know, compares the entire Torah to the ocean um, and just how it's constantly moving, constantly evolving. I mean, you can draw a lot of, you can draw a lot of uh, thoughts from there, but, but how, uh, if you'd like to consider the commandments as sort of those large waves that, you know, people like to surf on, but yet... Um, in between those large waves, it's constantly moving back and forth, and there's little waves that are just as important, and you know, great feed the ecosystem just as well. But great people notice the big waves, obviously. Great. So um, it's making an analogy to something that, because good analogy does this, something that people know and could see, and they're 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 picturing as you just did for us. They're picturing the waves, and the commandments are the deep roads. You shouldn't say commandments. The the utterances, right? These are the big waves. And then there are little waves or water in between. And that are the what he calls the details. And you went even further, which is great, um, than the text actually explicitly says in the metaphor to say that, you know, maybe it means that they're just as important. Maybe it means that they're constantly evolving or moving. And these are other ways that you could go with the poetry of the analogy to try to understand maybe that's what he's saying. Great. Larry, I know you, you well, read, so... I was just going to say that this is, you know, it's, it's in an era where these guys dedicate much of their lives to interpreting Torah. That's what the process, Talmudic process is. Mm -hmm. And this sort of, I mean, it's somewhat self-justifying that, you know, the text is there, but what we really need to figure out is what's in between the lines. And that's what we do. I mean, that's what these rabbis are doing all day long. And if it, if it were simply... There's ten utterances. We all know what it means. Let's go do it. If there's nothing in between the lines, and there's nothing for them to be trying to figure out. Great. So I'm going to re-say what you said in my words for a moment, and then I want to add on to what you're saying because I think it's important. <laughs> which is one is is that this outlines the project of the interpreter and of the rabbi and the Jew, right? Which is is that there are these ten utterances, but it's not just like okay, these are the ten rules. We got it. It's easy to follow. Right? And we're just going to go ahead and do them. There's all this stuff in between the big waves, right, that are very, very important. And it's our job to figure out how to manage the space in between. And I will, what I want to add on to that is this. And tell me if you think I'm right. A, if it reflects what you're saying, or B, if you just think I'm right, even if it's not exactly what you said. Um, I think it also means that he doesn't think, meaning uh, it was a rabbi... Hanania, the nephew of Rabbi Yeshua, that he doesn't think that these ten are in and of themselves, right, complete commandments. Because if they were complete commandments in and of themselves, we wouldn't really need the details of the water in between. Um, so, I, I, that, that's, I'll just leave it at there. And you can think about that. Last week I was bothered by trying to understand why the Asot Hadibrot of the whole Torah mm -hmm. should be representative. I think this is satisfying because I think it says Revelation is not limited to those ten utterances. Whatever we understand Revelation to have been, it was more than just the ten. 
Great. And that's what it says on its face. I, and I think that's implicit and explicit in the text. Jay? So i got to go the other way a little bit here. Okay, go the I other missed, way. I missed last week. That's okay. So Last week we're, we're, we drilled down on the more specifics of the individual right. commitments. This is, yes. We did the, the trees first, and now we're doing the forest. So I, I certainly hesitate to say that any of the meets vote are unimportant. But I think this now, to, the, to me, this analogy clearly expresses that the ten utterances are preeminent. Mm-hmm. And um, whether one says more important or not, fair enough. I'll go. I'll say that explicitly, and that the others are still worthy of study because these ten don't necessarily apply to all aspects of life in a number of different ways. But at the same time, they're dominant enough that they're foundational. Um, I, I go so far as to say that, uh, and maybe this is unfair, so I don't, I don't want to derail the conversation. You know, if you don't keep kosher, but you don't murder people, we'd probably be okay with that, as opposed to we keep kosher, but I do murder people. That would be completely unacceptable. Good. So I think there is a relative connotation here. Uh, I'm not sure that's what this rabbi meant. I hesitate to read his mind. But that's that was my first blush when I read the words. So I, I, I'm welcome. I wonder what other people think. I, I do. Um, I do tend to think that you're very correct, and Lisa, I agree with you in the sense that I do think he thinks that these ten are preeminent in some way, shape, or form. Um, there's going to be another t- source if we get to it that's a bit more explicit about the last statement that you made about are these things like the ten inviolable ones, right? And and therefore have not only are they preeminent or pillars, but they are themselves such core mitzvot. It's like if you break these, you're done. You know, like you can't really be considered a, a good Jew in any way, shape, or form. Whereas the other ones, it's still important, but you can kind of come back from those. Um, uh, but this this one may or may not quite say that I don't know. I agree with you. It's question mark. Uh, there are that that does follow a line of thinking. But I do agree that the the presentation of the waves versus the water in between seems to say that these ten are somehow preeminent. They're pillars. They're signposts. They're major major poles for the framework for what Judaism is about. And all, the other stuff is fills it in and gives it its substance and, and completes the picture and makes it apply to all of life. But these are kind of ten major major uh, frame posts or pillars that stand there that without them, you really couldn't build even, you couldn't build the structure. Um, and But he falls short, I think, if you agree with me, I don't know, uh, I think he falls short of presenting these as commandments. You know, we always call them the Ten Commandments. I don't think he seems to imply, this is the Talmud, doesn't use the word mitzvot or commandments. I don't think he's implying that these, um, these are in and of themselves meant to be specific law, you know, code of law type of things. Obviously, do not do X kind of comes off that way. Um, but I, I, you know, I'm not sure. Um, are these categories? Are these general frameworks, it's still a little unclear. Um, anybody have any thoughts or reactions to what, what I said, what Jay said, what Bruce said? Actually, another thought on, you know, pairing this between the, 
the crusts and the troughs. If you take the second half, the between man and man, and you go back to the Hillel Midrash, about the one foot, it's all there. You collectively take these five, and that's all about treating the individual with respect and rest. It's commentary in the troughs. Mm-hmm. It kind of ties in that way. Yeah, I mean, it definitely talks. It makes these sound like whether they're principles or commandments or whatever they are. But these are like headliners, and then there are the stuff, right? The rest is the fill-in stuff. But um, I, not to demean the fill-in stuff, but they, they kind of fit under these big headlines somehow. Um, at least that's how I look at it. And yeah, but then there is a problem because we had this discussion of what was what did the people hear and what did Moshe hear? Correct. So. If all of the people heard it, then I then I can follow this better than if they only heard one or two, and then Moshe heard the rest. Then where were the big waves? But they didn't. But people didn't hear it. How are they preeminent if they weren't? They weren't heard. Um, there are. Sorry, go ahead. Maybe the people heard the ten. And Moshe heard. That, that would be more satisfying. But the but the tradition that says that they didn't then. It's hard to reconcile with these being preeminent. And that's a very Talmudic frame of mind. There are lots of um, um, logic problems in the Talmud to follow. That, that's a Talmudic statement. If you follow this opinion, then this opinion is problematic if you follow that opinion, right? But if you follow the other opinion, then this opinion makes that one make more sense. And it's like this whole thing. So yes, and there are multiple opinions. There are two major opinions and then lots of variations on it. One opinion is is that God spoke the first two commandments and that's when the people were like, we've had enough. You, Moses, you tell God to stop speaking, you tell us the rest of it. And then there's the other opinion that all ten were spoken to everyone um, and heard by everyone, and then it's after the ten that they were like, okay, okay, we've had enough, you know, and so on and so forth. Well, last week you said, was there one that just the Aleph? That's the Hasidic one, and that's why I said there are variations. Right. And so the Hasidic one is, is, a, is a subcategory of the first opinion that I shared, which is, is that it came earlier on, and the, the, the claim there was is that God didn't really even speak. He, like, was on the verge of speaking, and that freaked everyone out. Right, and, and so they were like, oh, this is too much. We thought we could handle this, but, you know, just you speak, Moses. We're used to you, um, and so on and so forth. All right, so here we have one attempt at trying to contextualize, like, what are these things anyway, right? And how, what's the analogy in my head to understand what the relationship of these ten debrot are to the rest of the Torah? That's kind of what they're trying to figure out. Like, what's the place of these things, right? Because obviously, the, the contextual story part raises them up. I mean, they were said out Mount Sinai in some way from God's mouth, so to speak, right? Even if it was only the Aleph, right? The attempt was for God to say these to the people, or he did, right? Um, so it's got to be special, but special in what way, right? Are these categories, pillars, are they, what are they? Are they, are they ranked? Right, meaning like these are the ten inviolable ones, right? The other ones are important, but if you break them, we can. It's okay, kind of like after the fact, we still let you in, but we would rather you not do that. But these, if you do that, then whoa, you've really cut the core. Um, unclear, 
right? But these are the types of questions that we want to ask. Can I ask a question? Yeah, and then, uh, then we'll move to commentary five. Um, not to quote movies, but um, why is it that we don't know what the tablets look like? If wasn't there, weren't, they, weren't we carrying these tablets? Didn't we fashion an ark to, to protect these tablets? And, and weren't these tablets in the holy temple for a long time? Great point. And by the way, the Talmud, in the one that we didn't read in Talmud, uh, commentary three, Talmud uh, Bava Batra, uses the measurements of the ark and reverse, reverses the math to come up with the, the size that it, that it shows here, these cubes, right? Um, because they figure, oh, what else is in there? There's a scroll, there's some showbread. This is the size of the ark, so they must have been about this size, basically. Is. They don't say it in must have been. They say it very definitively. But, you know, th- th- they basically reverse engineer it and figure out the size. That's how they do it. But nowhere does it positively just describe and say, these are the luchot, the tablets, and these were their size, and this is what they look like. So the, the best shot that we have is this reverse engineering, reverse mathematics that they do, how it fit in the arc, so it must have looked like X. Um, that's the best, that's the most scientific explanation. It's actually in the Talmud. That's why we, don't, we do and we don't know what they are. It was almost impossibly unlikely that they looked like what most of us see in the movies or depicted in art with these, you know, however you call that, the curved tops or whatever. Um, and, and almost definitely weren't as thin as they're usually portrayed and so on and so forth. So, okay, let's read number five. Um, Professor Moshe Weinfeld, who um, was at Hebrew University in Jerusalem, and it says that he won the Israel Prize for Bible in 1994. Um, so I guess he was pretty smart. Um, does anybody want to read that text for me? And I'm probably going to pause you along the way and maybe even skip you a little bit. Um, anyone? Please, Mary, thank you. The statements are categorical imperatives that are not subject to time or circumstance and thus are always in force. Let's pause for a moment. That was like already in one sentence. He said things that you just need to like, what did he say? So he said, the statements, meaning the debrotes, the utterances, right? They're categorical imperatives. Now, who ever, who studied philosophy at all, a little bit, either in college or something? Who does this remind you of? Who was the imperative guy? Kant. Kant. Okay? So this is like Kantian philosophy. If you don't know what that means, that's fine, because he's basically going to follow that, and so you'll, you'll see what it means. Um, but this idea that the Aserta de Brot are likened to categorical imperatives, right? which is they're not subject to time or circumstance and are always in force. Meaning, how is he defining these ten things? There are categorical imperatives, which means these are the things that are always true in every situation, no matter what. Circumstances don't... It's not case law, right? Circumstances don't change this law. They're eternal, kind of, in a sense, in a, in a sacred <laughs> conversation. These are eternal laws that are always the constant. You can never violate these, no matter what. There's no circumstances that changes these. Are you with me? Okay. Everybody get that? All right. Go ahead, Mary. All right. No penalty is prescribed at the completion of the list, nor do they contain any legal details or limits. As a result, it is doubtful if these imperatives were ever able to satisfy the legal needs of the legislator, the citizen or the court of law in deciding justice. Pause. What does that mean? So what are these not? Laws. Laws. They're not laws. 
they're not laws. Now, why? What's his again? What's his rationale for making this claim that they're not, or they're doubtful that they're laws? They're actually laws. They're categorical imperatives, but they're not necessarily laws. They're probably not laws, is no, what he says. There was no, there was no recourse. Right. There was no There's no recourse. So, like, what happens if you violate it? There's nothing here. And then also, what does it also not describe? No he details. said. So like. They're just vague. They're vague, and there's no there's no detail on the limits of them, the definitions, right? Am I correct in saying for most attorneys that defining terms is very important, right? You have to figure out, like, the word that you're using, what it actually means. I mean, there's no built-in defining of terms section here. Um, it's very hard to use these and then follow them. Also, yeah. if they're not laws, they can't be amended in True, and that also helps because a law, just a law for the moment, you know, you can play around with the law, you can change the law, you can amend the law, you can get rid of the law. So he's also raising them above the level of the law as well, right? Well, legally, you know, often, often we read the phrase, the statutes shall be given their plain and ordinary meaning. Mm-hmm. So that's how they're defined. And how does that relate to the, you? Take me one step further, for me. Well, you were saying that uh, you know there's no definitions for anything, and uh, they can't be defined. And, well, there's they're pretty straightforward though. Great. So you're offering an alternative reading to say, or or you're arguing against him and basically saying, yeah, well, just because it doesn't have a definition of terms, and just because it doesn't fill in the details, if in your mind, they're pretty clear. That we know what that means. So that doesn't actually negate... Right. That doesn't actually negate the idea that they could... In addition to being categorical imperatives, they could also be straight-up laws. And by the way, I just want to remind everyone that I started this way, but I don't think I made it clear. The rabbis, in the end, right, like the classic way that we understand these are that these are commandments, right? So I'm offering you classic texts that didn't necessarily start with that assumption, right? And, and still allow us to question, because even in the Talmud, right, that this still allow us to question what its kind of contextual role in the Torah really is, right? Whether it was meant as commandments or laws or not. Obviously, we count them in the 613, right? Maybe it's not obvious if you don't know that, right? They're considered to be the Ten Commandments, and we do call them laws and commandments, but there have been arguments over time in Jewish tradition by some very serious and smart and classic sources that have kind of made the case that maybe they're not, right? And the reason that it's important to to think about is because if you don't only see them in the context of commandments, then that might give you an insight as to perhaps a deeper meaning to what it is or how it fits in the Torah, which might help you understand the Torah and, the, and, the, and the, the meaning or the lessons behind these. And so even if you also are going to act and think of them as commandments, because we know what they're really saying, quote-unquote, um, in addition, they might mean something else as well. Um, yeah. But would he be happier with Mishpatim? I mean, these almost come across the Hukim. And, and just looking for something that would satisfy. are laws that do not have explicit rationales. Right. So he's looking for something that would satisfy a legislator or a court. Mm-hmm. Doesn't give me a reason. Right. And these don't come with reasons. These just are. Yes. And so you have to buy into the divine authority for this to make sense. And he's saying, well, that doesn't work for courts of justice because I need an explanation. I, I would say yes, but. He's not only talking about rationale or justification, he's also talking about 
if I was a judge and I was looking at a case and it said, don't steal, right? And, uh, and I'm using this one on purpose, by the way. Don't steal, right? And I was like, okay, well, there are some gray areas. What if I took it from him because he... Ten, ten weeks ago, he gave me permission to borrow it, and I assumed that it would apply again today, and I was intending to return it, and then that's when he called me out and called the police on me. You know, did, I don't know. Does this, does this, did he violate Don't Steal? Did he not violate Don't Steal? And by the way, the reason I'm using that one in particular is, you know what the rabbis, the main interpretation of Don't Steal is? It's actually Don't Kidnap. Do you know why? Because the the... The, the penalties that line up for don't steal, like the normal thieving penalties that are laid out elsewhere in the Torah, do not, are not on par with the other things that are listed that we shouldn't do, like adultery and uh, murder and all these things. These are like capital offenses or have really high level offenses. And if it was just like I stole your pen, you know, that doesn't, the rabbis are like, that doesn't really match, you know. Um, so, but kidnapping has the same high penalties as some of these other things. So whether you agree with that logic or not, my point is is that you look at this, and I don't even know what it is, um, and I certainly don't know what the punishment is, um, even beyond the rationale for it, right? There's, there's more things that he feels are missing. Um, and, and again, but Rod's point is a very good one, and other folks bring that up, you know, as a negation of this, that, you know, kind of... Don't be so technical. They knew what it meant, you know, basically. It's not, it does, that's not a, a good enough case. Um, yes, Jay. Just to follow up what Ronnie said, to me the genius is that they are not written as legalistic phrases. Uh, recognizing that there will be extenuating circumstances or contradictory circumstances, it's okay to violate Shabbat to save somebody's life, for example. Um, and they've, because they've set them up this way, the, the plain meaning is understandable, but yet that there is still room for interpretation and modification, if you will. Furthermore, I think that if they were overly legal, if we overthought it, uh, to me there's a, and he sort of states this a little further down, they're mutually reinforcing. I think they, they speak to different aspects of behavior, but taken together, um, to lift his words a little further, it formulates the conditions of belonging to a community. Very nice. I don't know if that could be accomplished in a highly legal, if these were all like fleshed out in a highly legal code, Code-like language. Precisely. Um, what I will say, what I'll ask you is this, if I may push you a little bit. Do you feel like your statement about the flexibility of the law um, applies only to the Aseret Hatibrot, or are you, do you apply that to all the commandments? All. Great. So that is wonderful. Um, what, it, what, what that explanation, while maybe true and very smart, doesn't help us explain, though, is what's the deal with these ten? Like, why are they different or special? Um, what you're saying they're not unique in is this, in that the fact that they're left simple or vague or however you want to put it, that's a common between the 10 and the other 603. Um, and then what we're still searching for is why are these the 10 that were set on Mount Sinai? Um, so that wouldn't separate them out. Um, he's trying to make the claim that what partially what separates them out and, and um, is, is that these are categorical imperatives 
um, and not straight-up law, and that's what's special about them, which would be different than what you and Rod, I think, are saying, which is good, it's good, good uh, arguments. Any other thoughts? Let's keep reading, because there, there is some good stuff here, which is why I chose this text. Thus, for example, it is possible to question and wonder about the type of robbery discussed by the A statement and about what penalty awaits the thief. Does the prohibition of murder apply only to a Jewish individual or to any human being? Which activities are prohibited on Shabbat? Truth be told, these questions miss the mark, since the ten statements are not a formulation of binding law, but are instead a formulation of the conditions of belonging to the community. And this is what Jay quoted, but I think it's worth saying. These are the conditions, he says, of belonging to the community. In other words, if you want to be part of the Jewish community, you have to already agree to abide by these ten conditions or these ten categorically imper- categorical imperatives, right? Um, it's not you're signing on to a specific code of law, you know, with all the agreements and in triplicate, you know, you're reading through, making sure <laughs> you caught all the language, right? These are kind of like pre-statements, like basic, like, okay, 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 can I now exist in the framework of this community? Okay. Now, what, what's the code here? Like, how, what's the actual laws that I have to follow? But these are kind of like, these categorical imperative statements that are the conditions for one to be a Jew, basically, to live in the Jewish community. You've got you to gotta kind of get your head around these, these ten. Yet we don't expel people that don't observe all of them. Right. So there's two, there's two questions underneath that. One of them is easy for me to duck because I could say that's a question of how we, we operate now as opposed to how we interpret the text in the text, right? So... Would they have kicked somebody back about back then? I don't know. In fact, the violation, the, what was the punishment for breaking Shabbat? We learned this from other places, so it was like death. So it kind of sounds like if you do that, you don't belong here. Um, so maybe, maybe they were actually looked at like that back then. I don't know. And then, of course, the Talmud says there was never a case of any of these things, like no one ever died for the... So the, it depends on how you look at where in history you kind of look backwards about how we operate vis-a-vis these ten. I'd like to look at it kind of like in its text, right? In, in the time, in a sense. Like how, what, what was the imagination about what these ten were supposed to be? Um, and he's making the claim whether he's right or not wrong, but it's an interesting, intriguing, intelligent claim that these are the formulation of the conditions for belonging to the community. They serve the function of determining what makes the society. Whoever does not adhere to them removes himself from the group. Legal limits and details concerning the penalties for transgressors of the law can be found elsewhere in other legal collections. The ten statements present particularly God's requirements of his people. God's requirements of his people. Okay. Having said all this, it needs to be stressed that the ten statements are not utterly abstract ethical rules, such as those that appear in various legal collections, such as love your neighbor as yourself, Love the stranger, or justice, justice you shall pursue. Well, here's, here's what he's doing here. I mean, I'm sure you noticed this, but he has to deal with what's the unique place of the ten statements in the corpus of the Torah. So he's already contrasted the ten statements from other like code-like law, right? He's trying to say that whether you, whether you agree with them or not, he's trying to say this is not like kashrut law, right? This is, these, are, these are ten preconditioned type of statements, categorical imperatives. But it's also not like love your neighbor as yourself, right? They're not aphorism type of statements or idealistic only type of statements. There's, there's some imperative to them, right, um, that goes along with this. So he's contrasting again. He's trying to find its unique place 
vis-a-vis the other statements, because otherwise you can make a claim from the other side. Well, fine, so they're not codes. There's lots of codes, but there's all these other statements. Why didn't love your neighbor as yourself make it into the tent? If these are the conditions to be in a community, why isn't love your neighbor as yourself in the tent? He's trying to say why, right? He's trying to play that these are unique. They're not code, but they're not kind of floaty, fluffy ones, right? That's my language, not his. He would not be satisfied with a phrase like floaty, fluffy ones. All right, go ahead. Therefore, there is no room to claim that the ten statements are the climax of the Jewish ethic. It is better to categorize them as thorough lists of practical imperatives that can be imposed upon all the Jews and which are the essence of God's demands of his people and his covenantal partners. And that is the conclusive thesis statement that he's making about what the Ten Commandments are. So if you were probably to push him, how do you define the Ten Commandments? They would be practical imperatives that can be imposed upon all of the Jews and which are the essence of God's demands of his people and his covenantal partners. Is this what signifies Jews from... That's a nice. That's a nice question. Um, there is going to be. There are other commentaries that would certainly make that claim, and I, I think he might make that claim because he's saying that these are the imperatives to be part of the Jewish community, and these are the demands that that God is putting on His people, the Jewish people, in order to be His people. So I think he probably would say that this is what makes Jews. I don't know if it's unique, unique, but unique in the sense that this is what God demands of us. These are the basics of what God's demanding of us. Anybody have a reaction to this uh, formulation of the definition here? Don't you think it's more or less the Jews should bring it to the other nations? Say it again? That the Jews should bring these utterances or commandments to the other nations? Well, that's a different question, right? That's not the question he's answering or addressing about once they've agreed to be a part of this and once they're following these categorical imperatives and then once they've accepted the codes of law that, you know, whatever, uh, what is the relationship between that and every and other people? Are we supposed to go out there and make other people Jews or are we, you know, no, only only supposed to... Bring these, bring right, no, no, it's a good point. Or are we only supposed to bring the ten utterances, right? Is that universal... You know, in a sense, like these are ten things that all people should kind of follow. As opposed to the seven things that all people are supposed to Right, as opposed to later on, but that's, a, that's the Talmud going back, right, right and pit, cherry-picking right. certain things. What Larry's referring to is the seven laws of Noah, which the rabbis later came to and said, all right, so the covenant highlighted perhaps by these ten utterances are just for Jews. But... There's got to be some rules that every human being needs to follow. I mean, God doesn't say the Jews have to do all these things, and I don't care what the rest of the people do, right? God has a relationship with all his creation, so, you know, murdering people is going to be on one of those, you know, one of the seven laws. Certain other things that fall in the category of at least follow these laws. Um, And then Larry's point would be, like, the the Talmudic folks who came up with the seven laws of Noah would say to you, Daryl, no. These ten are not for everybody because the seven are for everybody. The ten are for us. Whereas somebody else might say, I don't know, that I think maybe the ten are really the basis for the universal laws and these should be things that everybody should be following. How, um, would, you, how would you make a universal statement out of the first utterance? What? 
How would you make the universal problem. statement out of person number one? Right. You mean that uh, the, the saving from Egypt? Right, well, the, the way that you do that is through the legal mechanism the same way that we do conversion. Because you become the descendants of Abraham and Sarah. So anybody who accepted, you know, these principles, their history is kind of given to them, right? It's, 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 it's transferred. Um, and, and it's as if, right? So there are ways that you could imagine doing those type of things, but it's a good point. The commandments reading forward instead of backwards, they do seem to be specifically talking to the people that God just saved from the land of Egypt, which are the B'nai Israel, which later became the Jews. Yeah, I think that the, looking at the, the uh, ten utterances from the perspective of an evolved society like we live in, you know, the ten commandments, pretty obvious stuff, you know, these should be universal. But if you go back in time to the ancient world, you know, these were special. And the civilizations didn't follow those rules. Right. And this was this was something unique and and uh, very special. Um, and that is part of what I thought maybe we could jump to. Um, let's. I, I know I might be going forward and then backwards, but I'd like to go to source ten, following up on Rod's comments. Um, and I think it's more apropos to this discussion. Source 10, sorry. In 74. 74, thank you. This goes back to my problem where my materials have different page numbers than your materials. So, um, And I wasn't necessarily planning on going right to 10, but I think it makes, I'm calling an audible. Um, so, Nahum Sarna, many of you know who he is. He is a great biblical scholar. He also has a brother, Jonathan Sarna, oh no, it's his son, son, Jonathan Sarna, excuse me, who is a great scholar of American Jewish history in particular. Um, he's, the son has been here a couple of times, actually. Um, but Nahum Sarna wrote some amazing stuff. I, I had to, it was required reading in rabbinical school and all that stuff. Um, so really, really smart um, uh, biblicist. And he obviously knew his biblical history really well, like contextual ancient Near Eastern history. And he's going to draw from that part of his knowledge here. But I think it's really interesting because we usually don't, like Rabbi Kurtz and I don't usually give sermons based on this stuff, right? Talking about the ancient Middle Eastern milieu from which the Torah comes and all that kind of stuff. But I think Sarna says some really interesting things. Is anybody willing to read? It's going to be a little bit long of a text. Obviously, I'm going to stop you and break it up a little bit um, and maybe do some skipping. But anybody willing to read the text for me? English? I'll read it. Jay, thank you. Uh, starting at the beginning? Yes, please. The covenant concept. The Hittite treaties more or less conform to a six-part pattern. First comes the preamble, in which the initiator of the treaty is identified by name, and his titles, attributes, and genealogy are listed. Pause just for a moment. I just want to point out, obviously he's going to make an analogy between ancient treaties agreements between two parties and the covenant between God and the Israelites. And he's using the Hittites who are contemporary to the Israelites um, as the model because they had some real examples of Hittite treaties um, that he could actually make real comparisons to. And the first party says in the Hittite treaty is the preamble where the parties are named. Okay. Next comes the historical review in which the past relationships between the contracting parties are set forth. In particular, and this is its main function, there is a reminder of the previous benefactions bestowed by the suzerain, feudal lord. 
upon the vassal. These constitute the present claim of the suzerain on the gratitude and allegiance of the vassal. Then follow the stipulations, which are the core of the treaty, the call for the deposition of a copy of the document in the vassal sanctuary, often with provision for its periodic public reading. A long list of gods who act as witnesses to the terms of the treaty, and finally, a statement of curses and blessings, the former describing the dire consequences in the event of the vassal's infraction of the treaty terms, and the latter pointing to the beneficial results of faithful adherence to them. All right, pause. Think of the Ten Commandments. Which of these things are in there? Which of these things are not? Well, Do your first, own analysis. The first, uh, I mean, it, it kind of went in line with the first three, I thought. Good. Right. right, so the preamble. I am the Lord your God. Right. The history, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and took you out of the land, right? That's your historical review. And then come the actual, what do they call the stipulations, right? And boom, 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 boom. What's not there in the Ten Commandments themselves? The deposition, the witnesses, and the curses and blessings or consequences section. However, however, where, where do we find these other components elsewhere in the Torah? We do. Who are the witnesses, by the way, who are referred to later on? Who? The whole nation. No. No. Who are the witnesses listed? The elders. Heaven and earth. Oh, right. Right? Because there's no multiple gods. You can't have a list of multiple gods to be witnesses, right? Because we're monotheistic, right? Who's the witnesses? Heaven and earth is often cited, right? Um, that the promise is made upon heaven and earth, okay? And what are the curses and blessings? Well, we just read one version of them in Kitavo last week, right? Bruce read it right here beautifully, right? So you have... I don't know, I couldn't hear <laughs> here are the blessings. Um, um, so it's actually two places in the Torah where we have a section of, well, if you follow, good. If you don't follow, really, really bad. And we'll tell you all about the bad. Um, and, and in the Shema itself, it sets that up, especially in the second paragraph of the Shema. And, and then what about um, the deposition? Well, there is a list, there is a section in the Torah that does say, in the Torah itself, and then later on in the prophetic writings and in Ezra, it, 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 it talks about this in more detail, but at least it says every seven years, actually in the Shemitah year, the, the Torah was supposed to be read aloud. So you could kind of say that component survives in some way, that there was a requirement that this be read periodically, you know, to the people to remind them of the agreement um, that they made. So... The claim would be that in the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Utterances, we have the first three components that are similar to a Hittite contract, um, and the other three not so much, but elsewhere in the Torah, so like it's still within our tradition. But let's see now where he goes with this maybe trivial information. Maybe it's important. Let's see. Turning now to the covenant at Sinai one can detect at once some striking similarities between it and the structure of the Hittite treaties as just described. The Ten Commandments open with a preamble identifying him who initiates the covenant. Quote, I am the Lord your God. Then comes the historical review. You know, I'm going to pause you and then have you skip because we basically did the analysis in the section. Okay. And go to Israelite Innovations, line 45 on page 75. So now we've, we see what's the same. We identified what's similar. 
I want you to see how Sarna breaks down what is unique. And this goes to Rod and even Daryl and some of the other folks, folks who are contrasting and comparing. Yeah. The parallels we have listed above are sufficient to demonstrate that the covenant in Sinai falls within the scope of the ancient Near Eastern treaty-making tradition. It's in the dissimilarities, however, that the significance of the biblical institution becomes evident. First and foremost is the revolutionary expansion of the original treaty concept in that God and an entire people become parties to the covenant. There is no known parallel in history for such a notion, no analogy to Israel's claim to have undergone such a national religious experience and no conceptual prototype of that claim. All right, so what does that mean? What's the significance of what he's saying? Do you understand what that means? It's not revealed to a prophet who shares it with us. This is a broad declaration. We're all bound. Great. So there's two components to this. Number one, um, it's it's not something that happened between one and one, right? It's not like a covenant that was made between God and a single person. And the second thing is, is that because of that, we have examples perhaps of where God maybe have revealed himself to a particular prophet or priest who then told a bunch of people that they should do whatever it is that God said. Um, there is no parallel. What he's saying is, is that God directly spoke to a whole group and imbued that whole group with a national religious tradition that ties directly back to God, Right. So he's saying this it may not sound like much to us today because we're, we're so firm in our monotheism that it's hard to even imagine not being monotheistic. Like Most of us, I would say, have trouble even imagining how could somebody have ever thought that the statue in front of them was, you know, had any power, that the river had its own power or whatever. We, we're so caught in our monotheism. But he's saying that this was a radical departure, what was unique about this, and so... To see the Ten Commandments in this light, or the Ten, I always keep saying that, the Ten Statements, to see the Ten Statements in this light is like, this was like huge. When, when it said, I am the Lord your God, and speaking directly to the people, and there's no other gods, right? This was a declaration of immense proportions. It wasn't necessarily, again, this is another alternative to them being straight up commandments, is that this wasn't like meant to be like the laws. This was like, mind-blowing insights (laughs) that God was sharing with the people directly. This was, this was huge declaration, um, not simply a command or, or a statement of law. Is that, am I making any sense? All right. So I think that's, that's part of what's, what's going on here. All right. Keep reading unless other people have comments. This innovation is connected with another. Unlike all other treaties, which are individual, discrete documents of state, The Sinai Covenant is embedded in a narrative context from which it cannot be separated and from which it derives its meaning and justification. It, in turn, affects decisively the entire subsequent course of the scriptural narrative. The ensuing history of Israel is measured and determined by the extent of the people's fidelity to or infraction of the covenant. What is he saying here? How would you put that in your own words? About the uniqueness of this? If you follow the covenant, you'll have rain in its season. Right. And you'll survive and you'll get the land and everything will be fine. That's the promise. That's true. But what's special and unique about this covenantal document? It, it, it represents um, <coughs> a way of life for the entire people. It's not just a discrete transaction. And it's embedded in a narrative that both gives it 
specific meaning and also directs the meaning of the rest of the narrative. It's a two-way arrow, um, which is very unique. Like Larry said, it's not a discrete document, just like you find a legal document. This is embedded in a story, a narrative about our history that colors the way that we see the covenants and the meaning of the Aseret Hadibrot, right? And then the Aseret Hadibrot themselves were not only discrete laws, but they were a happening. They were an event in the history of our people that shaped how our people responded to the rest of what happened to them until now, right? So, as he points out, that after the Sinai moment, the whole Jewish story hinges on whether how we're doing vis-a-vis the covenants, right? Are we following what God said? Is God angry at us? Is he happy with us? You know, this, this, this question keeps following us around um, and, and determines kind of the course of our, of our history. Um, and I think he's building a, a case and offering us a perspective because he's not asking exactly the same questions that we're asking today in class. Um, but he's offering us a perspective that when you're trying to answer what's the function of these Aserat Hadibrot, try to remember to try to think about the context in which they're spoken, right? And what subsequently was the effect of the Aserat Hadibrot on how the rest of the story played out. And you can learn a little bit about what the Aserat Hadibrot really are if you think about the context in the narrative, right? He doesn't actually say that, I'm taking what he learned and taking it one step further. So, is it that he came out of Egypt and it was just chaos? I mean, they just left and ran away. And here are these statements, these utterances, as guidelines, the way to live. And then going forward, develop the rest of the mitzvah. And there's your honor, there's your system on which to live. Is that what you're Well, that would be one way of okay. using the story to help you try to understand the meaning of the Sarah Hadibrot, that they came from Egypt, they came from kind of chaos, they came perhaps from being slaves, they came from being embedded in another culture, and maybe you look at these ten as like, like you said, like the ten headliners, you know, for like, what's different about being an Israelite? What does it mean now that you have a relationship with God and you have a national identity and you're, you're leaving the land that you were born in. Um, and um, what are basically going to be the general kind of framework of the rules of the game, you know, moving forward. And that's, that's what this is. And that kind of gives them the framework from which to operate. And as they continue to learn the rest of the laws, um, you know, as the story continues. Because until this moment, um, the Sinai moment, the amount of laws that we derive from the Torah that are actually turned into like a mitzvah or a halakha, they're very minimal. It's from here on in that we start, the mitzvah, we start racking up the mitzvot, right? Um, so it is kind of mostly true that we, this is the, from this moment on is when we start to really learn what it means legally to be a Jew um, and to be a part of the covenant um, so that might have something to do with influence how we see these ten utterances as well. Any other thoughts or comments or questions? Yeah, it's almost like a package deal if you compare it to you know, U.S. Um, law. You've got a constitutional framework at the top, and the rest of the ten utterances, and then you've got the rest of the Torah that fills out legislation, regulation, 
guidance, it's reputation, it's one big package. I mean, I, I think that's definitely uh, one way to look at it, and there's a number of serious thinkers who, who do like to think of it that way, um, who, who like to see the, um, like these commandments as the meta-commandments, and they try to fit all the other commandments in these categories. Um, there's a debate about how well that works, right? Um, and I don't know if you meant this literally, so I may not be totally reflecting what you just said, but for example, um, what about Kashrut? Does, does it fit under any of the ten as a headliner? No. No, we went through that last week. It was so, it, it's, it's hard. If you go back earlier in the book, there's a cartoon that very simply sort of said, you know, yeah. Don't do the bad stuff, do the good stuff. Right, and yeah, then, we, yeah, we looked at that. Yeah, yeah. if those were the two commandments, yeah, you could do everything. Right, it's like, I don't think those people are going <laughs> to be able to handle that. You need, they need more details. Um, yeah, no, but the question is, is that, you know, some could say Shabbat represents, like, ritual commandments. So all the holidays and Kashrut, the headliner is Shabbat, but you put them all under, you can go through them all, right? All of them are like a meta-category for something else. Um, and then the commandments become commandments. I mean, these are a list of like the ten headliner categories for the commandments. And there are commandments themselves, and then everything else falls underneath. So even the rest of the 613, so the other 603, right, they fit underneath the headlines of one of these ten. But what do you, I didn't get what you said about Kashrut. My point is, is kashrut is, is an example of a problematic one. Right, okay. Whereas some people would say kashrut doesn't fit under any of the ten. So to claim that these are all... And that's just a good example because it is a very repeated, important part of what it means to be a Jew in the Torah. Right? The kashrut laws get repeated multiple, multiple times, but it doesn't make it into the big ten. So then the question becomes, if the ten are like headline categories and they're mitzvot in and of themselves then where does, which one does Kashrut fit under? It has to fit under something. And then some people, that's the example of then it falls down. Well, if you can't fit it in there, then it, that can't be the answer. These can't be the ten meta-categories that all the other ones fit under because how could you ignore Kashrut, right? I mean, it's, it's in the Torah multiple times. Um, or, I, my, my other example was that some people say it falls under Shabbat. Shabbat is an example of ritual commandments, Ritual commandments. Because if you think about it, it's kind of true. You could do that, right? Because uh, essentially the first three are more theo theological in nature. Five is parents, you know, um, which, you know, could come to a family law or something ethical. And then the rest of them are very, you know, kind of ethically oriented laws. And so Shabbat can be representative of all ritual commandments. You know, everything has to do with the holidays, rituals, you know, kashrut, all that kind of stuff. You could do that. And some say that can't be. And then they also point out, like, then that means Shabbat as a meta-category says, like, so much stuff under it, whereas, you know, the difference between don't murder and don't steal, like, what goes under those categories separated out is, seems relatively minor. It seems like a pretty nitpicky way of dividing things out, you know, compared to putting every ritual commandment under the title of Shabbat. Anyway, you get the point. This is how they argue things around. Any other comments or questions? All right, will you keep reading uh, Sarna here? Uh, where am I? 
that while all six formal elements of the Hittite oh, treaty, that while all six formal elements of the Hittite treaty, page seventy-six, line sixty-four, type can be located in the Torah. Three of them are detached from the account of the Sinaitic revelation and are diffused throughout through the rest of the literature: the deposition, the witnesses, and the curses and blessings. The separation constitutes another major departure from the Hittite prototype. The deviation is conditioned by the biblical claim. claim but not just the Ten Commandments, the entire corpus of laws, including the Torah, also has its origin at Sinai and is equally constitutive of the covenant between God and Israel. All right. His claim, right, is, is that because if we all kind of know or the ancients knew what the six elements were, and they perp- the Torah purposely, God purposefully, however you want to put it, right, purposely only included three of them in the actual revelation part, and diffuse the other three throughout the rest of the Torah, the claim is, is that this is not, the, the ten are not the complete document, right? It's not the only document that God, God himself, wanted us to know and, and told us directly. Because the other pieces are scattered throughout the Torah, it implicitly claims that the whole Torah is part of the covenantal document that God, God's self, made with the entire people. Are you with me? So if all the elements were stuck in the ten, we could maybe make the claim God spoke the ten, but the rest of the Torah, I mean, that's, I don't know, we interpret it, it's, it's all human, right? But because the other elements are, are put, scattered throughout, it means that, it, in, in a sense, the, the document includes the whole rest of the Torah. Um, and it's all directly from God. I don't know if that resonates with you. I mean, it's clever. I think that's what we said in the previous paragraph. We talked about it embedded in a narrative context from which it cannot be separated, from which it derives its meaning and justification. Mm-hmm. So you think that Our they're parallel? Our document is not the Aserah that you brought. It's the Torah. Mm-hmm. Even though we're trying to understand the place of the Aserah that you brought in the Torah. Right. Our... our understanding of our sacred text is broader than just the Aserahadi Brook. For sure. He's definitely on that side of the argument. But he seems to be making, I don't know, it's not explicit here, but the implication to me is that all of the Torah is revealed by God. Mm -hmm. And he's not leaving room for the concept that there might be multiple authors, so to speak, or divinely inspired authors. So here's what I'm going to separate for you. He, as a scholar, actually does, I, I assume, I don't know if he explicitly ever states it, believes in multiple authors. What he's trying to say here, there's a slight distinction, what he's trying to say here is, let's just call um, the, edited, the edited Torah, like I'll just call it the editor. The editor is trying to project to the reader the sense that if you're just reading the document as opposed to looking outside and analyzing it like we are, the reader of the document is supposed to think that the whole Torah is given by God. It's not actually given by God. Like, the editor knows that, right? Because he's the one who stitched all the pieces together, right? But then I'm going to give you the document, and you're going to read it as if, right, it's all given by God. So the editor wanted the future readers of the Torah to see it as one document, and because of the way that it's written, right, you would, you, would, you would then think that God gave the whole Torah. Because he want, he's, what he's making is that the theological claim of the Torah internally in and of itself 
is that God gave every word of it, right? And that it's not just, here are the things that God told us and the rest of it, we figured out amongst our leadership, the priests figured it out or Moses figured it out or whatever. Because if you do um, um, a specific read, there is a way of reading it and saying anything that God didn't directly say to Moses or the people, like the revelation, let's just say, was said directly to the people. And then certain things God said to Moses to tell the people. Okay, so we know that. But everything else that didn't say that, well, I mean, who knows? Well, there's a lot in, I mean, even on its face, the entire Torah is not God's utterances. There are things that Moshe said or Abraham said or that's that the point. said to each other. Mm-hmm. It's not a list of laws. It's not a history. It's its own kind of book. But there's a lot in there that's not God said this. Moses said this to Joshua. And exactly. And Saul did this. And it's not all, I mean, it might all be considered a sacred text, but it's not all quotes from God. Absolutely, and that, that leaves some room for who wrote the other stuff, who's recording it, who's deciding how to share it, you know, and so on and so forth. Yes? I uh, understand correctly that he was using an example that there's no other, no other instance of God uh, coming before a group of people and making a covenant at the same time. Yes, directly with them. Isn't that what happened after the flood? Well, God, no, he, he makes it with Noah. But wasn't it a group of, wasn't there a group of people? And wasn't the rainbow sort of a? a so the distinction a is, the distinction is the following: God makes a covenant with Noah and his family because that's all who was on the ark. It was Noah and his immediate family and some animals, right? He doesn't make it with the whole nation directly out of his mouth. The the consequences of his covenant with Noah to end up having an effect on the future of the whole human race. because, But at the time, it's just no one as family, right? And he didn't make it with them as a people. He made a, a, a deal with like humankind in general um, through Noah, essentially. And that's more of the prophetic model, right? God makes a deal with one person, right? Even if it has consequences beyond the one person, but the, the speaking was God to Noah. In this case... Theoretically, God spoke to the entire assemblage of Israel. In fact, our Parsha, this Shabbat, is, in Parsha Nitzavim, is, I, God is making the covenant, not only with the leaders, not only with this, not only with that, but the, the men, the women, the children, the stranger, the water drawer, the wood chopper, it doesn't matter who you are, God's making a covenant with each and every single one of you, like directly. Um, and that's, that's the difference that he's claiming. Now, you may say the distinctions between the two are not that material. You can make the claim that his big deal about how historic and big dealy <laughs> that is, that he made a, a covenant directly with an entire assemblage of people is not that an important of a distinction. Obviously, he thinks that it is, right? Um, but I could see somebody saying, so what's the difference if he told the prophet to tell everybody what he said versus he told them directly. So you can make the argument either way. Yes? You know, in, in my mind, it's huge because what that does is it sets up a covenant between God and each and every soul. Mm-hmm. A personal covenant, whereas if you're just speaking to Moses, right? it's a message. But this way, it's each person gets I mean, yeah, and, and to push that further, our Torah portion this week also not only says what I just said it says, but it also says that it makes a covenant not only with every person who's here, 
with all the listening that I just gave you into the water jar, but with everybody, whoever will be. So it's it's it, I love the right. Concept. So it really it really stretches that idea that it's with everyone. Um, it's a personal covenant with everyone, even if they historically it's impossible that they were physically there. It's not impossible for God. God renews that covenant with each soul um, on on a seemingly individual basis, right? Um, that's what it seems to um, imply. Um, let's see. I'm going to take over for a second just to point out a few lines here. Um, um, so the next small paragraph, the key is, is that he says that the provisions of the Ten Commandments are not the fruit of prudential wisdom or the product of reason, but literally conceived to be revealed will of God. This is one of his claims about what is so special about the Ten Utterances. Right? That these are true um, because they're revealed by God. That not all, it's not like after lots of study, this is, by the way, going to be the opposite of some of the other ones if we get to anybody else, you know, we'll say. But he's saying they're not true because naturally you would come to these conclusions. Right? They're true because God said them. That's why they're true. Um, Whereas perhaps you could come to reasonably understand certain other things, these are not necessarily true uh, about it. So it, it, it presents itself as not the wisdom and not the product of reason, but they're the conceived to be the revealed will of God. I mean, it's hard for some of us because, I mean, is it reasonable and has it probably been reasonable to assume that murder probably was not the greatest way to run your society? I think most of us would assume that eventually reason would have got us there. Is he making the claim that that we, the reason would never have gotten us there, or you're just making the claim that the rationale for authority, even if we would have gotten there by reason, that's not the rationale for the authority, right? The rationale for the authority is that God said so, right? Um, as opposed to the rationale for the authority being that it makes sense. Um, I'm not sure, but that's what he says, right? I, mean, I don't have the cliff notes. But that's really a, a, um, an important issue that certainly is argued about and discussed today, that impact of religion or the role of religion in influencing our ethical and moral behavior. Okay. Can we truly separate the two? I think Rabbi Kurtz gave a talk a few weeks ago um, after the Kiddush about um, who's the book by? Hartman, I think. About the role of religion and Mm -hmm. can you be ethical, if I'm paraphrasing it correctly, uh, without having religious influence and the like. What he seems to be saying here is the ethical imperatives, if you will, thou shalt not murder, steal, etc., are part and parcel of the very beginning, which is, I am the Lord your God. You cannot separate the two, as, I, as, as he seems to be implying here. So I think it, it's sort of interesting in terms of what is the role of belief in God, as well as religion, in terms of driving ethical behavior. Yeah, and, and I think... They tend, tend to separate frequently in today's society. And there are consequences to which way you conceive of these right. things. Right. I think that's really true. And that's that's part of what's going on here is, is that each formulation of what the ten statements are and how we should treat them have consequences to how we view our Judaism and our theology um, and our relationship to Torah. So that's why in some ways these, these uh, become important. Yeah? You know, it's... Uh, I've heard the argument that if, if there's no God, 
then you could take a Machiavellian view of the world and why not murder if I could, you know, if I'm tough enough and can get away with it? Mm -hmm. Why not steal and take, take what I want? What are the consequences? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I that actually resonates with me a lot. You know, when when I try to be thoughtful and logical about things, like what's the human motivation for a person in power, right? If they don't believe in God or that we're all created equally and so on and so forth, based on that we there's a creator who created us all and we all have a sacred soul inside of ourselves. If I'm a person of power, why, why intellectually? Why should I not just take advantage of everything? What's my framework for why I should care about somebody I don't know or why I should help anybody? What's, what's my framework for that? It is, it's, a tough, it's a tough intellectually. We may have gut feelings that tell us otherwise, and maybe the gut feelings are evidence that, of what? I'm not sure. But then for a lot of us, the gut feelings are evidence that there is a soul or a conscious, and the consciousness the conscience comes from something, probably comes from a creator. You know, it leads us back to something spiritual. Um, but anyway, go ahead, Renee. No, I, I'm not sure I believe that our ethics come from divinity. Um, I, I think that human beings can have a sense of right and wrong and kindness and compassion and not even believe in God. Now, that, that isn't true of me and my belief system. But I think sometimes in our society we tie too much into what's right in the name of religion. That's true, but there are actually two different issues that we're speaking about. Okay. You're speaking about whether people acknowledge, whether they acknowledge, they make a line in their head between their ethics um, and their belief in God. And what we're kind of speaking about is a different level about ultimately what's the spiritual ethical justification for somebody who says I'm a good person and I of course care about others but I don't believe in God. You know, if they were to be pressed, why? Why do you care about other people? Where does that come from? Because in, in oh you're saying I see well, what you're saying. How how do they how do they what's the frame? What's the what's the basis? Now they might have one. I'm not saying there's no such thing. I'm just saying it's kind of tough. It's like they would instinctually know they're a nice person and they are doing nice things for other people. I'm not denying that. There are nice people who say they don't believe in God or don't believe in God, I won't just say that, who don't believe in God, who are nice and continue to act nice, period. End of story, agree. The question is, as you push them, why? What's your framework for why it's important for you to do that? It's hard. Now, you may, some people will say, the why question is a silly one. It's, it's not the important question, why. If they're acting nice and they're doing the right things, then it's not, it's not material, it's not your main why. They're already, whether it's instinctual, whether it's society-based, whether it's because God, whether it's their soul, who cares? The key is, is that if there are people who are not acting nice, we've got to figure out what's the framework to get them to act nice. It doesn't matter why. But we're just doing a thought experiment here. Yeah. And I think that when somebody says they don't believe in God, that's an opinion. And to other people, the fact that God exists is a fact. And so, you know, you can say I don't believe, but it's a fact. So even if you're not consciously acting nice or whatever because you believe in God, you're still acting nice because God exists and he's there. And he's controlling you, you know, subconsciously in a way. Right. It's a nice point about 
perspective of somebody who takes God as existing as a fact for granted, their view of what's going on for the person who's nice but doesn't believe in God is different than the own the person themselves who doesn't believe in God but is still acting nice and with their own justifications for it. It's it's very interesting. I mean, there there's one little like tiny little fact, I don't know how important it is, but they did a study, I don't know, it was eight years ago, ten years ago, something like that. Um, uh, I think it was one of these Pew studies. They did a Jews in America and Christians, and they found that um, there was a huge, especially in the Jewish world, it was like huge gap. Jews who belonged to synagogues gave way more tzedakah and did way more volunteer work and community service than Jews who did not. And there are lots of re- reasons for that, like, oh, it's an organization, and the synagogue's always offering things, and it's easier to do and all that. But the point was, from a spiritual point of view, is, is that a religiously motivated organization, right, that somebody chose to affiliate with, even if the person themselves didn't believe in God or whatever, but the, the, the organizations that were motivated by a religious belief that all people are created equal because there's one creator and that are motivated by that idea are the ones that are out there, you know, trying to help people they don't know, trying to, like, feed the people, right? And it's not that there are no such organizations, but the, the imbalance, the ratio, right, of, of religiously motivated organizations doing such work and individual people or secular organizations trying to do such work. It's, it's, it was pretty far out of balance. It was pretty interesting. Beth? Well, your point is, is contradicting the point I was about to make, which is um, that you go back to our earlier commentary about the fact that these are community-based standards. And you, know, you can still behave in a way that takes into account the community you live in without necessarily acknowledging a belief in God. I think that's true. Also, I mean, I think it's true. Um, it's just a question of the balance between which percentage of people it's true for. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you know what I'm saying. but Anyway, um, let's look at, oh gosh, what do we have, like 10 minutes less? Um, okay. Uh, let's look at page I love it, I love it, it's great um, I just wish we all had the stamina and time to just keep studying, keep studying but we don't, I mean I'm probably going to fall asleep in about a half an hour the only thing that's keeping me awake is that I'm teaching this class um, <laughs> I got up very early today alright, um, Rabbi Joseph Albo um, a 15th uh, century Spanish-Jewish philosopher, and I'm going to kind of take the helm for a moment. He wrote the following, which I just think is interesting. He said, If a prophet or one professing to be a prophet should come and say that he's been sent by God to promulgate a law abolishing permanently the words of Moses, he must not be believed so far as concerns the Aseret Hadibrot, since they were heard from God. What he's doing is he's making a distinction. The Aserah he wrote, what is special about them? Forget this talk about whether they're law or they're not law, they're commandments, they're not commandments, they're principles, they're not principles, they're uh, imperatives, they're not imperatives. I'll tell you what's special, he's saying. They were literally said by God to the people. The rest of the stuff wasn't, right? This were the only ten. that, And he's obviously falls into the category of people who believe that all ten were said, right? As opposed to the Aleph or the first two or whatever. He's clearly in line with that. If you believe that only the first two commandments were said directly by God, then his whole thing falls apart. So, neither must he be believed in respect to other commandments, but then he goes on through this whole thing to say, 
basically that there are ways that even the commandments that Moses, that God gave to Moses to give to the people, if there was another prophet that could be verified that superseded Moses, right? Because God theoretically could send other prophets. I mean, Christians certainly believe that, right? You know, there's Jesus. uh, Muslims certainly believe that. Muhammad, and there's logically, there's no reason, there's not process-wise, there's no reason to say that they're wrong, right? Because after Moses, there were other prophets, there were other prophets. There's, there's no reason to say that it ever got cut off, except that we believe that at some point, and we have reasons for it. But there, there could be another prophet that God could send, theoretically. And this, his claim is, is that, theoretically, there could be another prophet that comes down and negates the parts that God said to Moses. But never the Aserat Hadib wrote. But it says there will never be another prophet like Moses, like Moses, you can still be a prophet and deliver a message. There are plenty of them afterwards. I mean, who do you think Isaiah was or Jeremiah? So, right, there are plenty of prophets, but not exactly like Moses. He was the greatest of all the prophets. Um, but he's saying that because the Aserat Hadibrot were given by God directly to the people, it almost goes back to the Kantian you know, the imperative, the eternal or categorical imperatives, these will never, ever, 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 ever be nullified. Theoretically, some of the other Torah could eventually be overturned or nullified. Not these. And that's actually what makes them special. That's his claim. That's what makes them special. Um, And then lastly, um, again, I wish, you know, we weren't just summarizing because it's three pages of Buber. Um, Martin Buber is a you know, fairly contemporary, a 20th century philosopher. Many of you have at least have heard of him. Um, he's on Commentary 12, page 79. Um, he's famous, and this appears in this little article, for the I-Thou relationship, meaning that the, the most spiritual, godly relationship that we can have is when you have a direct relationship and you don't see somebody as a... As a as a category or as a tool. You know, his examples are you go to the bank or something like that, and Bob is the teller behind the bank, and you don't see Bob. You see a teller who's going to help you get your money, which is fine. He's not criticizing that. He's just saying you don't have a God relationship with Bob if you see him as the teller who's going to get you money. You're going to have a spiritual God relationship when you see Bob as Bob. And he he uses the same analogy, though, for how we interact with with God in the more transcendent, you know, view. That there's a personal relationship between you and God or you and the mitzvot. And when you can get on that level, that's the real relationship. His opinion, though, which I invite you to read at home, um, his opinion, though, is is kind of intriguingly the opposite, despite his spirituality. Um, He claims, unlike, you know, Sarna claimed that historically... The ten utterances were to be seen as God-given and therefore true because God said so first and foremost. His claim is that the Aserat Hadibrod are kind of back to our conversation before about the seven laws of Noah are really the ten universal principles. His claim is exactly the opposite. Any spiritual person, person who can connect to God, all of those these things will be clear. They should become obvious, right? The idea that there is only one God and that you shouldn't have images, you know, that kind of get in the way of having an I-thou relationship. That's how he would put it in the spiritual terms, right? And 
Um, his claim that, you know, he doesn't deal specifically with the fact that says, you know, that took you out of Egypt or whatever. He would probably just say that was in the moment that he was speaking to the Israelites, he was using a reference that they could understand so to create that personal relationship so that they understood who he was. Um, but then he just goes down the line, like, Shabbat is, he sees as universally obvious. Sarna, we didn't get to. Sarna says Shabbat is one of the major institutions that is unique to the Israelites' version of religion that is not obvious, right? The idea that you should have a day like Shabbat is not obvious in, in Sarna's kind of historical mind. He's like, nobody else had that. Nobody else had that. That was, God said to do that, so they did that. And now it's become institutionalized. But Buber is saying, eventually people would come to understand that all people need a day of rest and a day of spirituality and a day of this. This is like, if once you get to know God or once you sin, you will know Shabbat. And it's obvious, and you should know that you should love your parents and respect your parents. And it's obvious, of course, that you, know, you shouldn't murder and you shouldn't steal and you shouldn't commit adultery and you shouldn't bear false witness and you shouldn't covet. And these are all universal laws. And the reason that God says them on Mount Sinai in that way is because, and this almost comes back to Daryl's point too, about the relationship of the Torah to the rest of the world, which is, is that this was the moment that every all the peoples could come back to. This is the eye down moment when God appeared to create a relationship, and he wasn't just doing this with the Jewish people. We were just the example, right? We were the, the prototype, right? But these are all laws when God was revealing his true self, his eye to our thou. These are the things, right? And anybody who is in an eye-thou relationship with God could come to these things too, right? So um, I hope I've at least put a few models in front of you through the curriculum. I mean, really, Melton's doing it. I'm just trying to bring it out. Um, Melton attempted to put different models of how to view the Aseret Hadibrot, starting with the assumption of that they're mitzvot. Um, are they head categories of mitzvot and things fall underneath them? Are they categorical imperatives? Are they kind of a mixture of a Near Eastern treaty kind of document, a covenantal document, with purposeful innovations by God that make us special and unique? Um, are these, uh, we didn't get to some of the ones who were, you know, it's about, half of them are about relationship between us and God, and half of them are relationship between us and our fellow human beings, and these are kind of like ethical outlines and theological outlines. Some of them do a parallel where the first matches up with the fifth, and the second matches up with the sixth, and the third matches up, you know what I'm saying? And they like try to create parallel relationships, so across the tablets that there's a theological side and an ethical side to everything that we do. There's all these wonderful drashot about how to view it, and, and those type of um, analogies are trying to make the claim that these are all mitzvot, um, but they're mitzvot that are emblematic and represents broader understandings that the rest of the mitzvot fall underneath, um, which is, you know, partly where Simon was going and other people. So there's all these models that are out there, and you now you're going to have to decide for yourself what you think these differences really are all about. All right? So that's that. Um, our next class is, um, unfortunately, in terms of the big break, is the 1st of November, because... 
almost all of the holidays are on Tuesday, and the one that's not, which is Yom Kippur, is it's Arab Yom Kippur, so it is also you know basically the holiday too. So um, we, we, we're, we're going to be at Kol Nidre, not here. Um, so. We don't have a choice. It's like, see ya, right, is right. So hopefully some of the concepts will carry you through the wonderful Chagim. Um, I hope you enjoyed.